Awesome. Thank you, Kayla. Appreciate it. Appreciate you, Kayla. Thanks so much for serving us like that, uh, giving, you, giving your gifts <clears throat> so that we could, be, we could be stirred. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, so grateful uh, that you're here today. Thank you. Uh, my name's Lance, and it's, uh, it's a privilege, it's an honor, it's a joy uh, to pastor here at Midtown, and uh, now I'm excited to focus on, on Jesus. In a, in a moment, we're going to read the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 10. We'll end up walking through the first 18 verses of this particular chapter. Uh, but I, I want us to frame for a little while just exactly what's happening on Easter. I don't know if you knew this, but today, around the world, it's been happening already for probably some 12 hours or so, there have been Easter celebrations partaken in by some 2 billion people, some traditions going back millennium, and in this particular moment, us gathered, us considering what Jesus has done, I think it is significantly important that we not murmur at this point. The world is watching. It's a world that needs hope. It's a world that's facing death. It's a world that's facing brokenness. And so my desire is as clearly as possible to not stutter in this moment, to describe who Jesus is and what he's done. If I had to sort of frame it in a, in a simple idea, I think what Easter is, is an invitation to hope. It's an invitation to imagine life away from the fallenness, the futility, the sadness of this place. It's an invitation really to a kind, of, a kind of boldness in approaching God that otherwise would seem unthinkable. I think you could frame it in, in, in one small way to say that basically this work of Jesus allows us to imagine life after life. I know that normally the phrase is life after death, But death has been relegated to a back seat for us. We will have life upon life. That's what we'll have. I know for many of us, that's a difficult thing to imagine. Some of you, when you were small children, I'm sure had vivid imaginations. One of my favorite things in the world is to imagine things with my sons. If I'm ever lacking clarity or excitement or some sort of pizzazz in my thinking, I can just ask them, hey, what do you think we should be doing here? What's going on? And within moments... There's spinning tales of heroism, right? Normally they're at the center of it. I end up being a bad guy often, so they can punch me. And many of us, unfortunately, have lost our ability to imagine, and Easter is an invitation from God to imagine life not in the futility of this fallen place, but made new. If you need some help with imagination, C.S. Lewis, I think, had probably one of the most amazing imaginations the world has ever known. And for the month of April, we're going to be looking closely at the hope offered in the resurrection, and we're borrowing a little phrase from C.S. Lewis. Let me just read it to you. It'll be on the screen there. This comes from The Last Battle, the final installment of the Narnia series. These beloved human, this human gang, these People who have been coming in and out of Narnia find themselves there after a tragedy in a way that seems different than before. And this is what Aslan says to them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, 
as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is over. This is the morning. It's a profound statement. It's only possible for Christians, for you and I, to talk with this kind of craziness if Jesus actually accomplished something quite profound. Every human interaction, every person you've loved, everything that we've ever owned on this earth will be lost. Death is coming. And yet we gather and we worship and we sing and we read books like this where Aslan says, this is the morning. The good tale has begun. His imagination of what life is like in a resurrected, redeemed, reworked place is fascinating. It's a place where you can run and not get tired. You can swim up waterfalls. One of the young boys says to another, can you believe this place? I can't be afraid even if I try. Those are a few of the things that God is inviting us to imagine in what Jesus has done. But we can only imagine it and we can only land there if we have dealt squarely with who Jesus is and what he's done for us. There's a lot of pressure on Easter. Everybody looks great. You look awesome. Got meals planned and I work for a church, right? So this is a lot of pressure. It's supposed to be, uh, supposed to be like, okay, this is it. I want to be as frank and clear and in some ways as simple as I've ever been in a sermon in my entire life. Let's read beginning in Hebrews. I'm going to Hebrews because the emphasis of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is best. Jesus alone is worthy of your life. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about Jesus and his work. Let's begin reading. If you have a Bible, you could follow along. Or if you need one, there should be one in the row ahead of you. This is the first verse of Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I'm just going to pause there. Let's pray. God, what a joy, what a gift that we can address you as Father this morning. Thank you that despite all of our unworthiness and our doubt, the fleeting spiritual passions that we have, Despite all of that, you see us perfectly clothed in Jesus' righteousness. That when you look upon us, you look at us with all of the affection of an eternal father on an eternal son. And God, I ask that you'd help us to be clear, to be as clear as possible to our own souls, to one another, and to a watching world of the hope that we have. We thank you for speaking in your word. You've not remained silent. You are a near God. You have ordained that if we would just seek and grasp for you, that you would be found. God, I know that we need your help. These moments, Holy Spirit, come. 
Open eyes. Soften hearts. Give us ears to hear. Not only to hear, but to begin to cherish and revel in what Jesus has done for us. God, we ask this so that he might be made much of. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to say basically three words to describe what Jesus did on Easter weekend. Somewhat in view, we have, of course, the path that we walked Good Friday all the way to this morning. Jesus didn't go from victory to victory, escorting in an era of unparalleled peace and prosperity. He walked a path of mockery and shame. He absorbed the wrath of God, was dead, like really, really dead, not partially dead. And he comes to victory through that path, his work in totality. I think what we could say about it is a couple of things, and I want to be clear. One, it is necessary. It is necessary. Nothing will bum out your Easter like believing the secret lie down in your soul that maybe, just maybe, Jesus wasn't completely necessary. That maybe on a technicality you'll be able to slide by because you're just a little bit better than the other guy. Jesus' work was necessary. More than that, beautifully, in the face of unbelievable need, Jesus' Life, his death, his resurrection were sufficient. They were sufficient. It is finished, he declared. He didn't say, I tried hard, good luck. That's not the declaration from the cross. The resurrection doesn't mean, well, that was a failure. I guess we have to try again. His work is sufficient, perfectly, without defect. You can rest on what he's done. Not only is it necessary, not only is it sufficient, but get this, get this. You can get in on this deal. You have an interest. You can have a stake, a real life claim in the work of Jesus. Every bit of merit that he earns, every moment of love and piercing affection and intimacy from the father to a son, that can be yours. Jesus' work is applied It's applied. The Holy Spirit takes the benefits of Jesus and he he establishes them in your life. We are not here to simply think about a great example of a guy who got it right a couple thousand years ago. We're here gathered as a remade people. In, In Jesus, we are living now. His work is our work. If you are trusting in him. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. It's tempting to, tempt to try to be clever. But we need to be as clear as possible. Jesus and his work is a big deal. You are going to celebrate and party like it's 99 today, right? You are going to go, you're going to have a wonderful day with family and peeps and all those things. You know why? Because Jesus is worthy of your life. He's worthy of your life. His work was necessary and fully sufficient. And more than that, you can get in on his work. Let me show you where I'm seeing some of these things. You can't help but read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 10 without understanding that the entirety of the book rests on this assumption. 
You ready for it? It's on this assumption. You are a mess. You are a dirt bag. You are dead. You are insufficient. You are unable to stand before God because you are imperfect. More than that, you have what the Bible just flatly calls sins. Outright rebellion. Not just, oh, I guess I didn't quite get it. I tried hard though. Sometimes you know exactly what you're doing and you still do it. We cannot rush past this assumption. Why is there a system of the law? It came to show our sin. Why is there an entire system of priests? Because we needed someone to mediate on our behalf between man and God. Why are there sacrifices being offered, blood being shed daily? See, the Hebrews would have read this, and this system is still ongoing. They would have seen it and sensed it, probably smelled the blood. We're far removed from that, but we cannot miss the impact. Why is this whole system in place? You know why? Because they were not perfect They wanted to be perfect. There was something in their soul. I believe that every single human on the planet has been given a conscience, something inside of them that says, I need to be made right. And of course, we've all encountered it's a terrifying thing to silence and suppress that conscience, to believe that everything is fine. We get an ounce of pride in comparison to friends. We're just a little bit better than. I'm not Hitler, right? I mean... The reality is you are not perfect. In all of humankind, since the fall of Adam and Eve, have been attempting to get right with God. They want to be clean. It says these offerings, wouldn't they have stopped being offered if they would have actually made clean the worshipers? You know who needs to be made clean? Dirty people. I was on the Instagrams the other day, right? And... Uh, I saw a picture from some of my great friends of their boys playing in the backyard and they were just covered in dirt, face all muddy. In one way, it's just like so sweet, right? I love it, like boys being boys. But then you also think to yourself like, well, you're a mom, right? Like, do not come in here. Do not come in here with that dirt, right? They need to be cleaned. And I don't know if you knew this, but the way to life is to accept the fact that you need to be cleaned. And I think that you know this. I think deep down everyone knows this. It's why you work so hard. It's why you defend your ego so much. It's why you pray. Because your conscience cries out to be made right. You need a mediator. You need your sins to be forgiven. That is the starting point of new life on Easter. It is necessary. And can I just tell you that one of the greatest causes of spiritual malady for most of us in life is that we begin to believe the lie that we don't really need this? Have you ever tried to be truly grateful, truly put to use, truly humble about something you were convinced you just did not need? Isn't that what wedding showers are all about, right? 
Isn't the entire painful experience just an attempt to think to yourself like, oh, Nana, you're cross-stitching of potholders. These are great, right? Admit it, you have a box right now of things that you've basically never used. Sarah was working at Target when we were engaged. And when I went to visit her, I think the one time we saw each other in our engagement, I went to Louisiana. We walked around and shot things with the gun, right? This is a side note story, but I, I wanted a massager, one of those you could do on your back, you know? I just thought it was, I mean, I was 21, a lot of stress in life back then, no kids. <laughs> I was taking at least like three classes, you know? So I wanted this massager. I was disappointed. I really was at the end of our, our wedding shower. We didn't get it. We didn't, I was like, we got all this. We didn't get it. And then Sarah sheepishly confessed to me that after I left, she thought we didn't need it. And so she went one day when she was at work and shot the thing off of our list. She didn't need it. It wasn't necessary. What we did need apparently was three microwaves because we didn't get that. Have you ever tried to feign passion and love and gratitude for the third of something that you need? Our apartment had no kitchen. We had to put the microwave on top of the refrigerator. This is basically true. We weren't going to stack three of them, right? And I really believe this earth, this place is full, maybe even down in your own, your own soul. There's a hint. You're just kind of skeptical. You just think to yourself, well, maybe, maybe I'm okay. Maybe not really need what Jesus has done. You will get nowhere. You will not find life until you lose it. None of us gets to wake up and start the walk with Jesus on Sunday morning. Everyone loves Easter, loves the victory. Yes, give me more of that. The parades, the coronations, the reigning, the resting. The only way to life is to recognize and admit and fully confess your need. Do you need Jesus if you feel it, if you actually ponder it and feel it? And when you hear, if you've been longing for righteousness, and if you've sensed in your own soul an inability, if you know your conscience is screaming to you that one day there'll be a reckoning, then when you begin to hear tales of God who came, of a Savior who satisfied, and who invites you to forgiveness of sin, then you perk up in your soul. Jesus must be necessary or he is nothing. That's the first idea. It could have been, however, though, that he was perfectly necessary and that he would just fail like all the rest, right? He would just fail like all the rest, all the high priests. They were sincere. There was an entire system of sacrifice and yet they were failing. That's the point of the next 10 verses in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me begin reading in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings... And these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He's different. He's sufficient. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been, 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They're insufficient. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the sufficiency of Jesus. Not many priests, one. Not many offerings, one. Not offered daily, once for all time. No longer standing in service of God, but seated at the right hand of the Father. All of the attempts for us to be made right before God fall short. This means that you can be as far from God as an achieving person, as an underachieving one. This means that a man-made religion or your attempts to be moral enough can fail you. It means that you can win Super Bowls and date supermodels and have super bank accounts and it all feel empty. It's not enough. Only Jesus is sufficient. He's sufficient in two ways. He's sufficient for you. Why is he sufficient for you? One, because of who he was. Jesus was divine and human. And in his divinity and in his humanity, he walked a perfect life. He was the absolute, spotless, blameless Lamb of God. Scour the earth and you cannot find another as pure and blameless as this. More than that, he was strong enough to absorb the wrath of God. In our sins, the wrath of God is set on us. And only Jesus was sufficient to absorb fully the weight of God's wrath. You can scour the earth and there is none sufficient like Jesus. And I hope you sense the beautiful rest in this, right? It means it's finished. He doesn't say try harder. He doesn't say I hope it works out for you. He doesn't say I did my best. Jesus' work is sufficient, complete, perfect, pure for all time. It is eternally strong for you. And more than that, it was sufficient because it was enough for God. In the end, every sin is an offense against God. In the end, he is the one with, which, with whom we have to do. You will stand before him and account for your life. And there's evidence all throughout Scripture that God, before the foundation of the world, had covenanted with his Son to redeem a people for himself. Jesus was sufficient for God because he was commissioned by God. He was approved by God. He was authorized to be the sin-bearer for God's people. It's pictured here in Hebrews 10 by this awesome idea, right? Have you ever had a job where just to sit down would have been the best thing in the world? I worked in paint, plumbing, and electrical at Home of Economy in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Tagline was, be wise, economize, right? This was my job when I was 18. The only rule at the whole store is that on your nine-hour shift, you could not sit down. I've never wanted to rest more definitively, right? 
We've lost this a little bit, this picture of he sat down. One, because we don't understand the priestly system. Made up in the priestly system was the job description, stand. The high priests weren't rolling into the Holy of Holies and like kicking their feet up, right? Hey God, you got an Xbox? That's not how they handled things. To stand in the presence of God was a fearful, trembling, restless, anxious activity. And in contrast to that, Jesus completes the work sufficiently. God approves of him, receives him, and Jesus sits down. He sits down at rest with sureness and certainty to reign forevermore. Jesus' work is absolutely complete. It is an offense to the cross to try to add to it. It's why legalism is such a terrible, terrible tragedy. What Jesus has done is sufficient. It's worthy to be worshipped. These are big deals. This is enough for Jesus to be the center of attention. Sometimes entertainment, if Jesus just entertains you, the definition of entertainment is to watch someone do what you can't do, right? Isn't that the idea? I love basketball and I love watching the NBA. Why? Because I can't do what they do. It could just be that Jesus was an amazing example who did all these things and we're on the outside looking in saying, huh, I guess it was possible. Still going to die. The miracle... Scripture tells us is that his work can be applied to us. We've seen hints of it already through here. We will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, it says. It says that by his single offering in verse 14, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And now in verse 15, we see that this work can be applied to us. This is 15 to 18 of Hebrews 10. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Does it stagger you that all that Jesus accomplished can be credited to your account? I think it's one of the first places of pride in any human soul is to not be amazed that God would exchange your life, your work, your sinfulness for what Jesus has done. Have you ever heard of a great deal, great financial thing, maybe just a, a club, an elite group of people and you just felt on the outside you were left out? Thought to yourself, like, why didn't I buy more Apple stock? Right? Like, They said the iPod would be stupid, right? Why? To be left on the outside, to have this not apply, does you no good. If you are on the outside, looking at Jesus, even appreciating him, being entertained by him, believing he's a good moral character, a beautiful example of humanity at its finest, if this work does not apply to you, it is all for naught. I had a situation where Research, medical research, in some sense, did not apply and was kind of all for naught. My nephews, my brother Jeremy and his wife Rachel, have two sons, one who's 
seven. The other two, they both have cystic fibrosis, which is a disease that is really terrible, basically a terminal disease. Up until probably 20 years ago, life expectancy was somewhere in the teens. I think it's in late 20s now. I've really admired them for a long time. Their family has done amazing amounts for research. Jeremy and Rachel just posted pictures. They got all dressed up and gussied up. They got to speak at the, this uh, statewide association convention for CF fundraising. I think that all total in the last number of years, they've raised somewhere like $125,000 for CF research. They are still waiting for a cure. But about a year ago, there was some research that was released from the organization. It was a pill It's a pill you could take that would change the way that the cell wall functioned. It would restore basically full functioning to cells that do not pass water the right way. It means the pancreas is completely shut down. Over time, the lungs become to the point where they just cannot function. So much damage. I think my nephews spend up to two hours a day in a vest being shaken, take dozens and dozens of pills every day to be able to eat and be nourished. So far... They've been healthy, great. There's been some complications. About a year ago, there was this release of information that a pill had been researched, had been worked on, and worked out, so that in taking this pill, it was effectively a cure. All the vests, all the dozens of pills, all the worry, all the life expectancy things would be gone. Except, Jeremy and Rachel knew one thing. It's not enough that the work was done. It needed to apply to Asher and Beck. And so they scoured the article and they look at the bottom and it turns out this particular line of research, there are others that would help them, but this particular line does not apply to the genetic mutation that my nephews have. Only about 55% or something. And in that moment, it's all the hope in the world. They're still fundraising. They believe it's possible. It's possible that one can be healed of this. They know that. It's been giving them great energy. We pray for it weekly. But at the moment, they're in this situation where this effective cure has been developed. It does not apply. I can think of a tragedy no greater than for you to have heard of Jesus Christ and his work for you. There is one who is unbelievably necessary. More than that, unbelievably sufficient for you. All you need to stand in life before God. And to find out that one day you have left it unapplied. You're on the outside looking in. The next question might obviously be, well, how does it apply? How could that possibly be? What do I need to do? Where could I work? What can I do? The answer is simply to look on Jesus Christ and believe. To confess your sins. To recognize that God is holy and you are not and that you need forgiveness. And the miracle of the message of the gospel is that in your believing, in your seeing, in your humility, that God meets you and makes you alive and makes you brand new. That Easter is not just a whisper of a place that's out there somewhere that one day Easter will come home and we will live in life after life. That is the message of the gospel. I do not want any of those hearing my voice to be a fan of Jesus, 
to maybe even feel that he's necessary, to think that he's sufficient, and yet have his work be unapplied. The call to you is simple. To confess your sins, to recognize your need, rest on Jesus. He can hold you, and he offers new life. It's the message of Easter. We cannot stutter. Let me pray for you. God, thank you. Thank you for this room full of people who have been made alive. Thank you that when you look on so, so many people around the globe, you see, you see Jesus, you see his work, his life, his ministry.